0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Hello,
0: everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in the Grinnell College Authors and Artists Podcast series. And I'm very happy today to say that we have Barbara Trish on the show. We'll be talking about her book, Inside the Bubble Campaigns, Caucuses, and the Future of the Presidential Nomination Process. Out from Rootledge in 2022, Barbara. Welcome to the show. Thanks.
1: Nice to talk to you,
0: Marshall. Absolutely. Um, maybe you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I'm a Midwesterner. Kind of have. Oh, good. Good. It Should work out well then. Um, I um, came to Grinnell in 1990. It was my first um, full-time job in academia. Um, I, I'm a political scientist. And at Grinnell, I teach in the political science department. And now I direct as well, direct the Rosenfield program in public affairs, international relations and human rights. Um, back when I came to Grinnell 30 plus years ago, um, my husband and I came, we had met in a political science course, a graduate course at Grinnell political party, or at, at Ohio State, sorry, um, political parties. But we, we came to Grinnell with a nine day old child um, and sort of dove in and uh, you know over the last 30 years have you know we have four children now all grown and um, have you know kind of really had a great life at Grinnell College and in Iowa and it's been a life that's kind of you know intersected with politics in a lot of different ways I mean beyond the fact that I study politics um, my husband worked as a, a, a public radio reporter kind of entered the political sphere for a while I mean he's done stuff in politics our grown kids have worked in politics. I mean, it's hard to be in Iowa um, and not just in nomination politics, presidential nomination politics, but um, at least up until recently in um, national politics, more generally, It's it's been hard to be in Iowa and tune out um, politics. So it seems a lot of stuff has come together that kind of underscores um, our, our, our political lives or my political life.
0: I, I remember very well. I, I went to Grinnell from 1980 to 84, and then I left and wandered the earth, and then I came back as a professor at the University of Iowa in 2007, and I felt that political, the Iowa politicalness very well, because I remember being in line for coffee or something, and right in front of me was John Edwards. I don't know if anybody remembers John Edwards, but all the presidential candidates were in Iowa City to you know meet and greet, and I was like, wow. John, there's John Edwards.
1: Yeah. I mean, the cool thing is, I mean, maybe people know, maybe they don't know that Grinnell is about 60 miles from Iowa city and it's a small place. Iowa city is one of the bigger places in the state. Um, um, but they come to Grinnell too. I mean, can't presidential candidates are here on, you know, sort of an ongoing basis when the, when the cycle is full gear. I remember Ted Kennedy
0: came. I was, I yeah. got to hear Ted Kennedy talk. That was cool. Yeah. So you're right. I mean, And we'll talk about this, how Iowa has this kind of outsized and, according to some people, unfair uh, role in American um, political life. One thing, though, since we are doing this podcast for Grinnell College, I noticed that your book is dedicated to two people. Uh, One is John Kessel, whom I don't know. The other is D.A. Smith. That's Don Smith, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, Don Smith was one of my mentors when I was at Grinnell and a great fellow.
1: Uh and he still is a, a great fellow. And um I I, I you know, I've had the luxury of um uh, having a lot of contact with him over the years for um for sort of most of my time in this house that I'm sitting right in right now. He was my neighbor. And so, um, wouldn't surprise you. I think that Don would just sort of stop by on, you know, not if not a nightly basis, on close to a nightly basis, and sit around and talk about, you know, everything—politics, British history, uh, film, whatever. Tocqueville, one of his favorite, um, one of his favorite topics. And um, no, I I see him, still see him a lot. I talked to him and saw him yesterday.
0: That's great. No, he taught a class on the Enlightenment with three other, two other professors that really changed the course of my intellectual life. And I think about that class a lot. So just a hat tip to Don. Hi, Don, <laughs> if you're listening to this. All right. Let's get right to the book. Um, why did you write Inside the Bubble and what were you hoping to accomplish with it?
1: Well, I mean, I guess I wrote it to get out things that I'd been thinking out for a long, thinking about for a long time. The kind of ideas that were percul- percolating, um, things that I had written in conference papers but had never really pulled pulled together, or you know, sort of a thread that kind of wove through a lot of what I was doing. And you know, the thread was basically, um, you, know, what, you know, whatever systematic analysis is out there in political science. Um, at some level, there are people who are um, calling the shots, working in that world. And we know um, pretty little about them. I mean, we know a lot about, say, candidates and elected officials, but we know a lot less about, say, um, staff, congressional staff. And we know pretty little about campaign staff. And I was particularly interested in um, sort of the, the people who aren't prominent, the, the people whose names you would not recognize in campaigns, but they really do the heavy lifting of, heavy lifting of democracy. I don't think it's too much to say that. I mean, these are the people who at least given the way that campaigns and parties are run in the U.S. now and have been for some time, these are the people who um, do all the work and they get very little credit. They get very little pay, they get very little credit. Um, And then I think importantly, they're people who if they stay in the world, Will head off many into really important. Pos- I mean, these are important positions, but to head off into more prominent positions, and um, you know, be visible in politics. So I thought it made sense to learn about them, um, what their experiences are, um, their roles in campaigns. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm, ex- I'm interested in them too um, because I'm a teacher and I work with um, Grinnell students, who many of whom are interested in politics. And I'm getting into that world, and you know these are the jobs that they're going to be moving into. Um, as a parent uh, of uh, at least one kid, and um, and as and family members who've gone into this world, I felt a real, I don't know, passion, I guess, or I mean, sort of like a like a parent would. And and what are my kids getting into? What are they experiencing on the job? So 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 that's a long way of saying I've been interested in it for a long time, and I just had the chance to sit down and write about it with my husband, my co-author.
0: Yeah, Um, good answer. Um, I had a lot of questions prepared about the history of presidential primaries and uh, how it came to be the case that Iowa assumes such a large role in these things. Um, But I think I want to set that aside because you can just go to Wikipedia and read that. (laughs) That's right, right. <laughs> I think most of the people who listen to this understand that Iowa is first, and it has this strange caucus. Stra- I don't know if it's strange. I might mean, not be the right word. It has this caucus system, which is peculiar. Is that the right word for it? Um, strange
1: might even be better. But <laughs> yeah, and,
0: and at some point uh, in 1968, I think it was, or maybe '76, it 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 gained an outsized role, and according to some people, unfair role. But so, but I want to get to the what I would think of as the anthropological part of your book, because the book is really kind of an ethnography of these staffs. And I thought one interesting thing we could do is, is is try to trace somebody from the point at which they decide to do this through the campaign, then to the end when their candidate loses, because usually they do. Um, so how does how do they recruit people to be on these staffs? What is their demographic profile? Who are they?
1: Well, I mean, it probably varies a little bit, but for the I mean, that is the mechanism by which they recruit them. But, you know, by and large, they're after young people. Um, you know, a lot of people who are just out of, they, they go after people who are just out of college, or I, I should say, people who are just leaving college will try to get into the campaign. I'm not so much sure that it's them recruiting as people recruiting themselves or putting themselves out there. Um, you know, so that's where the campaigns. Um, you know, sort of that's the demographic for the campaigns for the kind of entry level jobs and the ones that we focus on. And I, I think the, the vast majority of the positions out there that these young people occupy in campaign politics, and not just Iowa caucus politics, but um, modern campaign politics in the U.S. for the two parties, I should say. Um, the vast majority of these are, I mean, organizers or field organizers. Um, it's a, it's a term that's, it's a position that's been around for a long time. What they do has changed, but these are the people with the, um, kind of to use a more modern term, the direct voter contact. They're the people who interact with voters or likely caucus goers. Um, and, you know, in some cases try to persuade them, but more often than not are trying to get them to volunteer for the campaign and then ultimately getting them and, getting them to get other people to the caucuses or to the polls. So these are the organizers in the old world. um, You know, 10 years ago, they used to be called almost exclusively field organizers. And now they're more often just called organizers. And the field term, I think, connotes the idea that back then, maybe it's more like 20 years ago, it was very much an in-person, in the field or on the phone or at the door um, enterprise, but now there's a little bit of a digital component too as well, so I think that's why if some if sometimes they leave the field out of there, that's the reason. But more often than not, these are folks who are gonna be placed, deployed, to a local area, you know, whether it's a big town or a small town, but they're, they're on the I block. like the
0: word deployed. Deployed,
1: yeah, <laughs> I mean, it is, I mean, usually that term doesn't come up <laughs> immediately. That's you're hired to be in Iowa, but you get deployed to another place once Iowa is done. Anyway, so those are the kind of, that's the bulk of the people. Um, we also, and, I, and one of the people that we kind of highlight in the book um, is a regional um, organizing director. So he supervised a number of um, organizers. And I think those jobs are populated by people. That's, that's not a job that you would generally take for a first job in campaign politics. That's one you'll get if you were an organizer in another campaign, or maybe you were an organizer in a particular cycle and you got bumped up to that in the cycle. Um, just kind of just a, a sidebar here. Um, in in the book, we write about, you know, a number of, of, of these people. And we use pseudonym, pseudonyms for the the organizers. Um, uh, only because, I mean, it's you know, we don't have to, but it seemed like the right thing to do to protect their identity a little bit because this is their first job. It's not that, I mean, these are real people. I mean, when I think about them, I think about them as you know, using their real name, so I get a little mixed up when I look at the pseudonyms. Um, and it's not that people can identify these people. I mean, people who are involved in Iowa politics know, in many cases, would know who these people are by just what they hear about them. And you could probably piece it together with data that are available out in the real world. You know, kind of the, the historical record, the, the official documents, and such. But I just wanted—we wanted to protect their identity, but getting to this this regional um, person who I'd like to talk more about if you want to hear about him, yeah. um, we use his real name.
0: Uh-huh. So let me just take a step back. So I'm imagining an NBN listener, 20, 20, 20 years old, they're in college maybe, they listen to some NBN interviews and they want to volunteer. Do they go online and fill out a form or is there an application process? Or,
1: Well, you know, first, I don't think they want to volunteer. I think they want a paid job. Mean, job. Yeah, yeah. Let's say They right. want a like, paid job. Right. So I mean, you can you can poke around online, get on. I mean, as you, if you pull up a candidate's website, for example, you're probably not going to get you're going to get the public facing website. You're not going to you're going to get volunteer for the campaign. Um, you know, but there are all sorts of um, email groups out there. There are, you know, talk to someone, um, call up a, a local party or probably a state party and say, hey, I'd like to work for this candidate. Um, you know, maybe direct message someone or get on social media. I mean, there there are ways to do it, and 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 there is an application process. But I and I think down the road, you know, if someone wants is is sort of in the mix for a campaign job, they're going to ask you to formally apply at some at some point. But you just get in any way that you possibly can.
0: So I'm trying to think, like after they accept, let's say you go through the entire process and they love you and they, they say, okay, we're going to hire you. Uh, two questions: What are they paid? Second question, is there training? I'm thinking of like camps. Do they send you to campaign field worker camp?
1: <laughs> In <laughs> Iowa. Oh, yeah. um, so, so first on your first question about what do they pay, um, it, it's changed over time. Uh, they don't pay a lot and they don't pay a lot or it's, it's when you think about the fact that you're signing on for a campaign and you don't know how long the campaign is going to last. I mean, it might might be two months. It might it might be a year. So you know, you might convert it to a yearly wage, but you may not be getting that down the road. But I mean, I think that this cycle and the pay was better this cycle. If you were one of these field organizers and you were fortunate enough to work for an entire year, you'd probably get thirty thousand. That'd be the gross the gross pay. Um there are benefits. Um this is something that's gotten better as well. Um insurance. Though most of these folks, I mean, if they're lucky enough to be on their parents' insurance. We'll probably opt to do that. Uh, probably be encouraged to do it, but we'll opt to do it because these jobs can go away in a flash. And so, you know, your insurance will go away in three weeks or something like if the if the campaign folds. So, so there's insurance. There's you know there's an employee handbook ultimately that will lay out the benefits. And I should say that a new a new development for the 2020 cycle is that um, most of the campaigns were unionized, had signed collective um, bargaining agreements. Um, but anyway, um, so that's that's the pay. In terms of the training, what generally happens is that they send you to, I mean, if we're talking Iowa or whatever venue it is that you're sending um, folks to um, kind of work on the ground, you would send them to the state. And one of the first things that they would do, that is within the first maybe two or three days, would have some sort of onboarding with the campaign. Usually, in um, you know, for instance, Iowa, Des Moines is the is the state capital, and most of the campaigns are headquartered in Des Moines. Um, it would usually be usually be in Des Moines, um, and you know, the onboarding or the training, I think, is is really ongoing over the entire career or the entire time in the state. What you'd tell the person or what you'd work with the person. At the start on is just how to get started you know how to how to kind of how to settle in how to i mean i, I get the sense that these these onboarding sessions sessions are a lot um kind of um bringing people into the culture of the campaign um because that's going to be so important uh, so important for them so but as they go on over the course of the campaign and um and need new skills use new techno- technology they're trained on an ongoing basis, often asked to to actually drive to wherever these um, things happen, but a lot of it happens um, uh, remotely as well.
0: Mm -hmm. So what do they do in terms of, I suppose it varies depending on where they are in the election, but what does their day-to-day work look like? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It varies. Um, But I think sort of one model of a of a day that would come up very often is that they would probably, you know, they don't start, they don't start really early. I mean, probably 10 (laughs) o'clock or so, um, but they're expected to work quite late. So they, they'd probably get up in the morning they might have some calls. There are set calls every, every week, but I, I guess their days are really, and their weeks are really focused on a set of, um, goals that have been established for them by, um, or at least conveyed to them by the next person up in the chain of the organization, and these goals are often articulated in terms of quantifiable actions that they will have had to uh, accomplish. KPIs, um, key really, performance that, indicators.
0: Yeah, That's what yeah. In business I mean, yeah. <laughs>
1: no, this. I'm fascinated by. I mean, this is this is not certainly not. I'm obviously not unique to campaigns, but I mean there does seem to be a premium placed on um actions and activities that can be tracked, um, to the exclusion of other things that might be sensible things to do. I mean, and to put some real something concrete on this, the um their goals are probably goals for um voter contact. I mean, how many, how many calls will you make over the course of a of a week? How many um, Uh, Contacts will you make at the door? You know, outdoor knocking or out um, canvassing. Typically, what happens is that, like this, is no surprise. The goals start out quite reasonable and achievable, and then you know you give the person a little bit of confidence, and then and then the goals ramp up really quickly to a point that when I hear about how many calls they're expected to make or people. uh, to talk to. It's like, there's no way anyone in the world can do that. And, and the idea is that, you know, kind of what they're going to be doing is enlisting this vo- or building a volunteer corps who will help them out. And so if you have a, a good crew of volunteers, then you take on a little bit of supervisory role and you make them do the right. the, um, the contact, the voter contact.
0: Yeah, this is the interesting part to me because it has that kind of Huckleberry Finn quality. So they actually go and try to get other people to do the work for free. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, <Yeah>. right. <laughs> I mean,
1: that's something that, I mean, that's that's probably been, you know, that's been going on for, you know, centuries. Um, but the Obama campaign in 2008 really um, – you know, really uh, optimize the way to do that by, um, you know, they had a campaign model, a field a field model that you know placed a premium on having. Well, they called it a snowflake model, um, and you have you have. I mean, you have the staff member who's paid, like in a in a county, for example, who enlists volunteers in neighborhoods, like a neighborhood captain. So these volunteers are not paid, and then those captains enlist other volunteers. So there's different layers of volunteers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of an organizational chart. Actually, I'm thinking of the mafia organizational chart, but that's different. <laughs> um, <laughs> so is this a way for someone to start a political career? Is that the kind of ambition that people have? or they? I mean, I'm wondering why someone would do this other than a great devotion to the candidate and American democracy.
1: Yeah. It's a mix of things that motivate people. Yeah. I mean, and some are really drawn into candidates. I, I suspect... You know, more often than not, they, you know, they kind of know they want to get into the world, this world. And then they they pick a candidate who who is a good fit with them or who seems like that candidate might be going someplace. Um, but, yeah, it is it is a good, uh, uh, you know, I guess with qualifications, it's a good way to get into this world. Uh, you know, if you're a person who can tolerate a lot of risk and uncertainty, I mean, and and, and this is something that really, really concerns me you know, if you're it's hard to be in this world, it's hard to enter this world if you have um, other responsibilities. I mean, if if you know, you have to send money to a family or if you if you're taking care of kids or, you know, there's or, or you know, taking care of someone else, it's really hard to get into it. Um, and that's I think that's sort of a, a a bias or a problem in this a barrier,
0: barrier. Yeah. It yeah. is definitely yeah. a barrier. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you have to hold down a nine to five to support your grandma, you're not going to be doing this job. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But
1: if you imagine a life for yourself in campaign politics, um, this is a good stint to start with. I mean, I suspect that many, I think people are reluctant to say this, but they think like, I want to, I want to become important politically, yeah. powerful politically. And some may, in fact, um, may in fact do it. It's, it's a tough thing to do. I mean you like you get winnowed. I mean, you have a lot of people in these worlds. there are very few um, staff staff positions, appointed positions that would come even working with a successful candidate. So you know but the thing is there's there's there' are not a lot of other paths into it as well. It's not like you're gonna have a lateral path into that into that. So this is probably the prominent route.
0: Yeah, it's, this is an unfair question, but can you think of any politicians that started down here as the footworkers for campaigns? Yeah, I mean, I'm...
1: Um, yeah, it's
0: an unfair question because yeah, I'm i sure think there the, are such people.
1: Right. Um, yeah, if, maybe by the end of our, our yeah, talk. Okay, that's I'm, fine. So yeah, I just, I, yeah. I'm, I'm
0: sure that there are such people that are now you know governors and senators who did start in this way. Um, so you talk about Something called the caucus bubble. So let's return to Iowa here. What is the caucus bubble?
1: Well, it's a metaphor. Yeah, um, I think it's a great met- <laughs> it's a metaphor. I, 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 I have to credit um, Daniel Slavson of um, Johns Hopkins, who was a, a, a an anonymous reviewer at the time, anonymous reviewer of the book, who came up with this idea. Um, but you know, it it captures a number of different um, dynamics in caucus politics. One. I mean, it's sort of like this. the caucuses are this rarefied world. It's sort of a bubble um, in which candidates and campaigns and activists and staff ex- exist. And it, I mean, as you mentioned, it has um, uh, it has way too much importance. Um, I mean, it and gets way too much attention. So it's a bubble in that sense. But there's also a, a sense in which it's a bubble like in the, the housing bubble, um, you know, something that could crash um, any day. And. Really, the history of the caucuses in the modern era, and by modern era, I mean after 1968, because there were major reforms in the Democratic um, presidential nomination process after 1968, um, and that that sort of spilled over into Iowa's Iowa's importance. Um, but in almost every election cycle since then, um, during which Iowa had been important in the past, um, there's. There's, you know, talk about oh, it's not going to last, or you know, I was going to lose its first in the nation position, or you know, something's going to change, and it's, you know, it's ongoing right now. The it's it's never really abated, but it came up in a huge way after 2016, um, where especially the Bernie Sanders um, folks were very unhappy with caucus politics. There's a lot to criticize in caucus politics. Um, it's, it's come up in a huge way after 2020 with the debacle of counting, um, um, in Iowa, we never really got a count until about a month after the the caucuses. And so sort of this ongoing concern that things might, might crash. Um, but it's sort of a useful metaphor as well. When you think about sometimes people enter and leave the bubble. Um, um, so, um, you know, that's, that's the caucus yeah. bubble. Yeah. So one of the things about the
0: Caucasus, which I find interesting, and again, I participated in one once, is how it tries to balance deliberation and democracy, these two things. And it's pretty deliberative, kind of weirdly deliberative. And it's kinda democratic, but kinda not
1: <laughs> well. I mean, on the, the first on the democratic side, you're right. It is kind of and kind of not. I mean, you get people, you know, you think of a neat New England town meeting, if that's sort of the model of democracy involving deliberation too. But you know, getting people together and um, engaging them in politics. I well, mean, yeah, the, the caucuses are like that, except for, you know, it's a very Very small percentage of Iowans who participate, or Democrats or Republicans who participate in. So you know, in terms of turnout, it's terribly undemocratic. Um, The you know, sort of the rules are such that I mean, they they make sense. Um, In terms of party politics, if you're thinking about a big party organization, but they're really arcane rules. And, you know, they're rules that don't always allow for, I mean, if democracy is about giving voice to everyone, they don't allow for that voice for everyone. And then, and the deliberation part is, um, you know, this may have changed a little bit since the caucuses that you were at. But what's happened over time, and and, and this is something that Don Smith, Professor Smith, um, talks a lot, a lot about. In fact, he mentioned it yesterday that um, the the size of the caucuses. I mean, d- despite the fact that few people participate, have gotten so big. And by so big, I mean something like if if you're in a, a big caucus in Grinnell, which is actually a, a big caucus for various reasons. But, you know, you might have 800, 1,000 people there. I mean, you can't have deliberation with that many no. people. So there's <laughs> not even not even the sort of deliberation that you would expect.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I went to one in Iowa City that probably had, there were probably 400 people in the room. And, and there was some chatting and they encouraged us to go talk to one another, the different candidates and so on and so forth. But I, I don't I honestly don't know if anybody's mind was changed during that process. That would be my right. guess.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, there's just a lot of chaos. I mean, I, you know, I sort of personally just like, I mean, I, as a professional, I love to go and observe as a, a party person. Um, I hate
0: to be involved in caucuses. Yeah. Do the, do the Democrats do it differently than the Republicans? They do.
1: I mean, yeah. the, it's they do in a big way, I guess. I was, I was first going to say it's largely the same. You know, they're meetings at the same time. Um, and and it used to be in the same location, really not the same room. But um, before caucus, some caucuses got really big, you might have the Democrats and Republicans meeting in, in like a, a school. And one would be in the library and the other would be in the, the cafeteria or something like that. The big difference, though, between the way that the party set up is that um, historically, Republic, and, and still today, Republicans have taken um, a, a presidential preference poll at the caucus. I mean, they, they let people vote, you know, cast a vote, a straw poll. And that becomes the result that the, that the party releases about the, the caucuses. Democrats have, at least until 2020, um, in which they had a version of that, um but Democrats have never done anything like that, and they go through an elaborate process of um dividing physically into um, groups. I, I remember um, this yeah and <laughs> um and then it becomes very complicated in terms of how how many delegates each um each group gets. so yeah, that, and that's a big difference. and I think that makes the democrat has made the democratic caucuses seem um, more opaque to people than the Republican caucuses. Uh Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. That's interesting. So what I, I was, I was very interested to find out that the, and I hadn't recalled this, well, let me ask a few questions. One is, why did it take four weeks to report the results of the 2020 Democratic caucus?
1: Well, uh, it's complicated. I mean, lots of things contributed to that problem. And one was that there were changes to the rules for 2020. And I mean, apropos of what you had just asked about, the um, Democrats adopted rules that allowed people to express their preference um, before they got into groups. Um, you know, they broke into groups. And so there was something um, more akin to an actual vote. I mean, they were careful not to use the language vote um, for kind of complicated reasons, but something more akin to a vote. Um, and then they went through the usual caucus process. Bottom line is, though, that in relaying the results of this to the state, there was a lot more information to relay. Um, I, I I think someone said like thirty six different um, figures that um, at the end of the caucus a, a local pre, the precinct um, chair would have to send to the state. Previously, they did this by telephone, um, you know, and and of course that's problematic because you know phone lines get jammed and things like that. This time, they had an app, um, uh, and an app. right had an app yeah, to do it. Modern. An right, app. Very modern, Very modern, an and it was it was developed for this purpose. And, um, you know, it looks like it was developed and maybe not tested, um, as thoroughly as it should be, maybe not the volunteers, um, who are running the caucus, perhaps not trained as well as they should be. They had the, the option to phone in the results again, but you know, it all started going downhill when they couldn't relay the results to the, to the state party and things had looked like they had gone very well until then, um. And uh, there was also a story that um, you know, in terms of the phone lines, what uh, oh that it was a um, that maybe Republicans um, had gotten wind of the phone line that was being used to tra- you know sort of the secondary path and had sent that out and then uh, Had enlisted others to call in and make it even harder to get through, so things like that. And then, you know, the sort of the next, that sort of this is caucus night when you would usually have some results. The next four weeks were just a series of, you know, trying to figure out what the real what the real count is. It's 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 hard. There was in twenty twenty, there was for the first time a real paper trail because um, these. They were preference cards, you know, like a maybe a four by six inch preference card that each caucus attendee was given. That was the first time that ever happened. And so there would be, you know, this this paper trail of people of the votes of people, which is really a good thing and turns out to have been a good thing because they could ultimately get um, use those. I mean, good thing good thing, bad thing, and bad thing in the sense that it revealed a lot of irregularities in the process as well. But even the process of getting the cards, you know, let's say there are, there are approximately 1,700 caucuses in the state, um, many of which are in different venues. And then, you know, however many people are at the caucus, the process of physically getting those cards to the state party is, <laughs> no, I mean, this it, would be a problem in any state. Um,
0: yeah. Um, so, And in Iowa in February, it's cold and there's probably snow and it's a disaster. So, yeah, that's right. So let me ask this question. So uh, Americans kind of expect uh, Iowa to do this job, and that is (laughs) winnow. Like, I don't know how many candidates there were in 2020, but it was like like 20 or something. Or even more. Yeah, Yeah, there were a lot of candidates. Did Iowa do its job in 2020?
1: Um. I mean, I think it did actually. I mean, I like I, I say that realizing that it that doesn't make sense because the results weren't yeah, even that's out. For,
0: well, that's why I'm asking. I don't for, know yet. Yeah. Another
1: week. I mean, it it winnowed candidates before before the caucuses themselves. I mean, there were there were a number of candidates which with who withdrew um, over the course of the of the fall fall of 2019. So in that sense, it did it. Uh, you know, I think. You know, Iowa Democrats knew or knew shortly after caucus night that it looked like Buttigieg and Sanders were sort of one-two in the caucuses, and that that um, Biden ultimately would come in fourth. But Biden didn't do very well. You know, so people tried to you know to game those likely results, but I think ultimately, I mean. Uh, I don't think anyone pulled out immediately after the caucuses. That's what usually happens, but that probably factored into decisions for candidates to withdraw after um, New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina. But the complicating thing this year, so when I'm thinking about your question, is that there's a lot of winnowing that happened because of the pandemic as well. Because you know, basically, uh, at the you know the caucus, the the Pandemic, the coronavirus that we were the language we were using at the time um, enters the U.S. psyche and um, public health world early 2020 in January of 2020. But it's sort of a blip; it's all in China at that point. And even on February 3rd, which is when the the caucus well, caucus night was February 3rd, there's not much much concern about um, um, COVID. Um, but then it ramps up um, over. At, a little bit um during that time frame of the first um the first or the, the second third and fourth events but it really ramps up and that's when the the candidates start thinking you know like we we really we've got a, a public health crisis um we can't contribute to to it by um kind of prolonging this campaign public health crisis and also you know a, Democrats were always concerned about needing to unseat the president um, and so I think that's when sort of they started rethinking how long they should stay in the race. So yes, mm-hmm. Iowa helped winnow.
0: Good So it's crystal ball time. What is the future of the Iowa caucuses? Are that you mentioned I do like this metaphor bubble because it's not predetermined it is not written in the stars that Iowa will play this weird role. so, What's going to happen?
1: Yeah, um, it has a giant target. Iowa has a giant target on it, but it has before as yeah. well. But, you know, the the most recent um, or the previous uh, chair of the Democratic National Committee, uh, Tom Perez, really didn't like the caucuses. I mean, in the, and there's been a push from the National Party to have all nominating events be primaries and have no caucuses. And it looks like Nevada, the other prominent caucus in the mix, caucus state in the mix, might go with a primary as well. Um, You know, so there's there's a lot of reason to think that things might change. Um, People in Iowa, I mean, Democrats in Iowa are divided on the caucuses. I mean, some some like Don Smith um, think that it's a model that we should. That we should um, stick with and find appropriate ways to adjust. And other thing, others think it just doesn't make sense. So there's, you know, a lot of there're going to be a lot of discussions. Um, I think that the National um, Democratic National Committee um, in its winter meetings, it's the Rules and Bylaws Committee of the DNC that actually makes calls on this or recommends this to the DNC. They're going to be meeting soon. They're probably going to be addressing it. Um, the Iowa representatives on that. I'm not sure how they're going to fall. Whether they're going to push forward or not. Okay, so that's sort of rules wise. There's going to be a discussion. Uh, if I were a betting person, um, gosh, it's it's hard to change things. I mean, they're going to have to come up with another another plan that's agreeable um, to not only well the national Democrats, the state Democrats, um, but in a in a weird way. Um, Iowa Republicans have a, a role in this Democratic, capital D Democratic discussion as well, because um, I don't think there's any reason to think that the Iowa Republicans are going to give up on their caucuses. And the caucuses themselves are written into, the Iowa caucuses are written into statute. Oh,
0: you no, know? I know that. Oh, yeah. okay. I mean, so it's this weird thing,
1: like state law mandates <laughs> that we have caucuses and, yeah. um, you know, sort of be a violation of state law. Um, the other thing is, I mean, you know, it's even if they changed the rules, um, in a in a way that made it look like I was gonna be less prominent, you know, it's always hard to know how reform is gonna play out. But if candidates kept coming to the state and the media kept coming to the state, then you know, uh, maybe it would remain prominent. And I and the final thing I wanna say about this though is that the we're in 2022, we're talking about a 2024 contest. It's not clear who will um, put their hat in the ring, but we have an, Democrats have an incumbent president. And there's always less motivation to change things, even though, you know, Biden did very poorly in Iowa, but less motivation to change things um, when you control the White House.
0: Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, nobody knows. But I can tell you my own personal feeling about it was I found it very, what is the right word for this? Kind of encouraging because of the deliberative aspect. You don't usually get a chance to talk to people about politics whom you want to talk to. And it matters because you're about to do something consequential. You usually just go into a voting booth, you vote, you're done. And and this is kind of, kind of an important moment when you have to explain yourself to other people why you're doing it and people on your own side. Um, and, and this this deliberative part, I'm afraid we don't have enough of anymore.
1: Yeah, right. Good point. That's um, a, a big plus of the caucuses if you can actually get deliberation going. At the same time, I mean, one of the major criticisms of the caucuses is that they're they're inaccessible. I mean, they're, Yeah, they're not they're, democratic.
0: Well, well, that's just it. I mean, you no. got to be honest. They're not particularly democratic in the sense of giving everybody a voice. No.
1: Well, that's I mean, a, yeah. I mean, someone who's working at caucus time. Right. That's you can't go. right. Yeah,
0: that's right. Yeah. So um, but. but you no, know, nonetheless, we—I'd like to find a way to preserve that deliberative part and make it more democratic. How you do that? I don't know if you can do that. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, yeah, well, I mean,
1: we—one of the things that we learned from 2020, when the pandemic hit, is that backs against the wall, um, campaigns and parties can change and use technology effectively to do things. And so maybe there's a technological fit fix. Yeah.
0: Massive that. Zoom meetings. That's, <laughs> that's what Americans want. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you very much for being on the show, Barb. We have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now?
1: I'm working on two things. One is a paper um, for a conference in the spring uh, on the caucuses, and I'm, I'm, working, I'm writing it. My um, co-author is a student, Matt Lee senior. And it's, we've kind of carved out a really narrow um, question, sort of an in the weeds question. It's, it's a footnote in the book, actually. That's kind. Yeah. And sort of without going into detail, it's about proportional rules or how proportionality plays out in the caucuses. And I think what, what these changes that the Democrats in Iowa adopted for 2020, um, you know, the Kind of a recorded vote for each person. That wasn't the only thing, but it's given us data that we hadn't previously had, and we can do some s- simulations of outcomes under different settings. So it's basically, um, you know, it carves out a focus on proportionality, simulates outcomes. Uh, you know, spoiler alert: the results probably aren't going to be that much different, but. But when um, results or contests are highly um, contested, when margins are small, small changes could have a real impact. And I think the other thing is I you know I'm being real abstract here, um, not because it's not interesting, but it's just too much in the weeds to talk about much. Um, the other important thing is it hopefully will illuminate why campaigns or the incentives campaigns face um, when they're choosing where to deploy resources.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's the first kind of concrete thing. And then the second thing is a kind of a longer term process a prog- um, project um, dealing with political work, kind of trying to kind of recapture this you know, ethnographic stuff. Ethnographic is the this word. And um, I, you know, I just love to talk to people about what they do for work, you know, where they work. I mean, just it, superficial things uh, uh, and potentially important things, um, as well. So I, you know, I'd like to kind of have a broader swath of political people and try to make sense of the work that they do. And importantly, the meaning of work of this political work in their lives. And, you know, I'm sort of not the first person to do this. Um, you know, Studs Terkel, I'm, I toss out his name with, with care because you could I don't think anyone, I sort of, I couldn't, or, and i Probably we all work with my husband on this. We've, we couldn't do what he did. But it's sort of that idea of hearing people talk
0: about work, political work. That's well, it. Well, that sounds fascinating. If any of that becomes a book, eventually you should write me and we'll interview you again about that.
1: Great. Great. All right.
0: Well, uh, let me tell everybody we've been talking to Barbara Trish today on the Grinnell College Authors and Artists Podcast. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor of the New Books Network, and I hope everybody has a great day. Thanks, Barbara.
1: Thanks, Marshall. Fun to talk to you.